From Chattanooga, Tennessee, this is Management to be Determined, a program about creative and decision challenges faced every day by entrepreneurs, managers, and business owners in the audiovisual industry. Your host is David McNutt, entrepreneur, management consultant, and teacher of business at the Zicklin School of Business in New York City. And now, here's David. Hey, Byron. Wow, what an opening. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate that. Welcome to Management to be Determined, a podcast about business. Well, that may lead some of you right up front to say, well, why is it called Management to be Determined? Because business is about decisions. Good decisions, good management. Poor decisions, not so good management. But management doesn't happen until we make a decision implement a plan, and then measure the outcome of that decision. Hence, management to be determined. So, first order of business is to define it. General interest, meaning none of your business, or occupation, meaning what do you do for a living? I'm a carpenter. I'm in accounting. It can even mean the company that you work for. But for the purposes of this show, we're going to call it an entity involved in commercial activities to provide goods or services. Now, that's very textbook. So I looked up the epistemology of the word, and it comes from Northumbrian Old English, and it has a meaning that says anxiety. So for the more humorous sides of this show, we're going to call it an entity involved in commercial activities to provide goods and services that causes anxiety for owners, employees, and sometimes customers. Business. We're all in it, you know. We're all in business together. You may be an owner of a business. You may work for an owner. You may work for a company. You may work for a company and have a business that you run yourself on the side. Some of you may have two full-time jobs. We're all in business, all of us, together. But I'm becoming more and more amazed at how much we don't know about the businesses that we work in. How many people? What are the revenues? Who are the competitors? How are we performing against other companies very similar to us? So here's a short overview of small business in America. Maybe this will help. Now stick with me for a few minutes because this is important. There are about 334 million businesses worldwide. The Small Business Administration in the United States says that there are 33 million businesses, a little more, in the United States. That's about 10% of all businesses overall. And these range from a million to 40 million, 100 employees to 1,500 employees. Now, when we add all of these numbers up, all of the sales from all of the companies at some given period of time, say every quarter, every year, we arrive at a number that's called GDP, gross domestic product. It's the value of all the goods and services that have been produced by all of these 33 million companies in the United States. GDP in the U.S. is about $23 trillion. Second largest economy is China, $17 trillion. Japan, $5 trillion. Germany, $4 trillion. India, 
2.9 trillion UK, 3 trillion France, 2.9. But this aggregate number really doesn't tell us a lot. We hear this, how much it grew, how much it didn't grow, how much it shrank. It doesn't really tell us much about small business. So to give you a little more perspective, let's look at a couple of smaller industries. The global music instrument market is about 11.8 billion for the entire world. Now here's some smaller numbers. Gibson, $990 million. Fender, $173 million. Yamaha Music, which makes a lot of different kinds of uh, musical products, $2.36 billion. The global systems integration market is about $400 billion annually and is projected over the next 10 years to be $1,800 billion, and that's almost $2 trillion. So here are some decent-sized businesses in the global audiovisual market. Shure Microphones, $440 million. Sennheiser, $494 million. Barco Technologies, $1.8 billion. QSC in California, $18 million. Biamp, $108 million. Crestron, $2 billion. And that gives you some size of the manufacturers in that global market. Some of you work in the systems integration industry. It's highly competitive and aren't many dominant players. For example, AVISPL is $1.3 billion. Diversified, $1 billion. AVI Systems, $220 million. CCS Presentation Systems, $115 million. Ford AV, $75 million. Um, if none of this is making much sense to you, you are not alone. As a person who's been in business all of my young life in various industries, I've always been frustrated with finding good information about small business. Here is, I think, why. Listen to this. 99% of those 33 million companies in the United States are considered small businesses. Hang on. Nearly half of all employees in the United States are employed by a small business. One more. 80%. 80% of those businesses are run by a single person and they have zero employees. Zero. None. Think of a donut. You got a, a donut graph. You have a donut and it's a circle and it's showing whatever it is. And so you got this donut and you take a bite out of it. So you have this piece missing. What's left of that donut represents how many companies in the small business list of companies in the United States have zero employees. As you might imagine, I had to find out some information about the 20% of those companies that aren't tiny business and aren't big business. So I called Doug Farron, who is Managing Director of the National Center for the Middle Market. And I came right out and asked him, what is the middle market? You've started with the fundamental question. Um, I'm surprised how oftentimes we kind of glance over that important uh, starting point, which is the definition. When we launched the National Center for the Middle Market back in 2011, we really needed to decide what that meant. And initially, we started by looking at, you know, several different options, none of which I think are too uncommon. 
Uh, should we use headcount, for instance? If you look at the government, a lot of their programs, uh, they break out different sizes based on companies' headcounts. Should we use profit, EBITDA, right? Like a lot of financial institutions will say, oh, this is a company's earnings or um, margins or things like that. Where we landed was top line revenue because um, it is what it is. <laughs> It's your sales. It's not necessarily as easily, you know, it's not manipulated. And then in order to truly capture the middle third uh, of the U.S. economy, we started to look at different variations of what that meant. And ultimately, we ended on a revenue range of 10 million to 1 billion being the middle third. The businesses so, that fit that definition, about 200,000 or so roughly, produce a third of our private sector employment and a third of the country's private sector GDP. Okay, let's break this down just a little bit. We're able to break out different segments of the middle market. So for instance, we've got three that we generally categorize. The lower middle market, 10 million to 50 million in revenue. Those tend to resemble smaller businesses. They may have lower headcounts, a single location, operate more like a like a small company. 50 million to 100 million, we call core middle market. That's when you start to see things like a full C-suite, for example. You may start to see an outside advisory board, right? You may start to see more investment in technology platforms, more sophistication in terms of the management tools. And then from 100 million and above, um, those are essentially operate as, as large companies. And you start to see more things like international revenue, um, you know, operating in, in markets outside of the U.S., maybe a, an international supply base, um, certainly a lot more um, tools and sophisticated management technology. And mostly privately held. It's a very small percentage that actually are publicly traded. Most of them continue to remain private for a lot of good reasons. You've got family-owned businesses. You've got companies that you know kind of tend to want to take longer growth strategies, and therefore they're not really too interested in public capital and or you know having to sacrifice long-term planning for short-term results. Well, the middle market was and 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 still is, uh, quite honestly, in spite of all of your efforts, very undernoticed. Sure. And underreported. And so all of the economic data that we hear or that, you know, managers in the middle market or CEOs in the middle market look at and they go, so what? Right. right. And, and so you've developed some way of describing the performance characteristics of the middle market. Have you not? We have. We certainly have. You're, you're spot on. I mean, it, one of the things we wanted to establish very early on was a barometer, right? We, as the national center, we felt it was really necessary that we would have a way to keep our, our thumb on the pulse of these companies, so to speak. And so what we ended up developing was a survey instrument called the Middle Market Indicator. It was first launched in April of 2012. It is a survey of a thousand C-suite decision makers, so senior leaders, could be owners, founders, CEOs, CFOs, but, but people who have a really deep understanding of these companies, 
how they operate, where they make money, how they grow, to be able to answer a lot of these questions that we wanted to pose to these companies. We measure five things in that survey. They haven't changed in 11 years. We look at top line revenue growth. We look at employment growth. We look at capital investment planning. We look at confidence in various levels of the economy, global, national, and local. And then the last thing we look at is uh, our, their key challenges or headwinds to grow. So what are the what are the big issues facing middle market companies? And then the last thing I would say is from survey to survey, we try to reserve some space to put in highly topical issues, right? So you can think, obviously, the pandemic. More recently, we've looked at issues like supply chain disruption. As we know, that's kind of been, you know, that was front and center in 2021. And um, we, we wanted to know how middle market companies were impacted by that. These last few surveys, we've been looking at issues like inflation, a potential recession. From June, we looked at things like the banking crisis that happened this spring. And we also mm -hmm. talked about issues around technology, specifically the use of AI. So what that does is it allows the center to kind of speak on front page, you know, top topic business issues, but all from the perspective of the middle market business. One of the things that we continue to hear, and this kind of goes back to your point, David, about this segment of companies largely being ignored and underserved, is that these CEOs have a really difficult time finding benchmarking data. Right. So it's one thing to say, great, this report came out and it's talking about the Fortune 500 and I'm seeing what the markets are doing. That wonderful. That has no impact on my company. So, again, what are what are people in my industry doing? What are people in my type of company and size of company? What are they doing? How are they performing? And then third is even drilling down more locally. What's happening in my backyard? And so, so it know, became clear to me at this point that the middle market index does have a pulse on the middle market portion of small business in America. So I began to ask Doug about some insights that he might see. Well, there's a, you know, there's a couple of things. These companies continue to be largely ignored and underserved. I, I think that's a, that's a big one. When we look at their growth rates, remarkably consistent. And we attribute that to a couple of things. We already touched a little bit early on about that long view that a lot of these middle market companies take, right? As a privately held organization, even in times of serious challenges and headwinds, I mean, take the pandemic, for example. Yeah, there was a year where performance suffered quite a bit, but th these companies bounced back um, really well. They're very resilient. Uh, another Here's another data point demographically. The average middle market business has been in existence for 39 years. So what that means is they've seen various ups and downs and economic cycles. And, you know, that it's, this is not, these are not, you know, five to 10 year old companies that a lot of them have, right. um, you know, quite a bit of history. Yeah. So that's another learning is that, you know, the, the, these companies are growing at a very strong, consistent rate that gives them enough scale also with that yeah. resiliency to be able to take advantage of opportunities and pivot and shift, you know, they're not going to deviate it, too far from their core competency, mm -hmm. but they can, 
they can take advantage of some things as they see in the marketplace. Well, sure. And as long as they have, as long as they have capital, right? In our MMI, for example, one of the questions we ask is, do you have any type of private equity investment? And about 40% of them do. Uh, oh. And the average amount of PE ownership typically ranges between 50 or 60% of the company. So not hmm. only are they getting that infusion of capital to help growth, but a lot of times they're getting advice and expertise, management, expertise, management yeah, experience, sure. uh, right. introduction to new tools and right. technology. So that's a way to accelerate, right? Some of that growth because they may not get there on, on their, their own, right? To your sure. point. Right, right. So next time you hear the term small business, think middle market, bigger than startups, um, smaller than Fortune 1000 companies, 10 million to 1 billion, a third of America's GDP, and a third of the private sector employment, which represents about uh, 6 million of us all in business together. There's a lot more to learn, if you want, from the middlemarketcenter.org. Thanks again, Doug. get into business in different ways. Sean Risberg is an engineer, manager, entrepreneur, and I asked her how she got into business. Well, it was unexpected. Um, I can tell you the backstory behind that. Um, when I was in high school, I got a partial, partial art scholarship, and I ended up going to the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale, where I studied commercial art. And um, after about three quarters, uh, the scholarship money ran out and my money ran out and my mom's money ran out. So I had to drop out. And, but what I learned at that school was um, being that it was commercial art, every piece of artwork that we had to do, we had to put words on it. So we had to calculate it and measure it. And I so much enjoyed that part of the commercial art aspect rather than creating the art itself. Um, so that was, it was good that I went there and I, I learned that, uh, that I was more engineering minded than creative minded. And so with that, I decided, well, um, I think I want to be an architect. So I started to go to community college and again, I was paying for it out of my pocket. Um, and I got really frustrated with paying for uh, the elective courses, you know, like nutrition and humanities and those sort of things. I felt like I was wasting my money almost. But I did get one architectural elective, which was very fun. I, I ended up um, designing and building a little scale model of a theme park that had three attractions in it. And um, that was really exciting. I really enjoyed that. Um, and around that time, I saw an ad on TV for ITT Tech for computer-aided drafting. And I said, well, I think I could, I think I could, I would really like to do that, you know, for the engineering and I you know, want to be an architect and you know, might as well go learn how to draw things. So I applied and um, I got in and uh, I, I graduated and uh, I paid for that entire school while bartending at the same time out of my own pocket. Uh, but during the last quarter, uh, this is where it all happened. Um, I was at the top of my class and I got the first interview with a potential employer and that employer happened to be Soundelux. 
and they hired me as a CAD tech. And um, that's basically how I got into the industry. And I could go on to say, um, you know, over those nine years, I, I grew, I really grew up at Sound Deluxe. Um, you know, I started as a CAD tech and I, at, in the beginning we were working, well, the whole time we were working on very large, um, you know, audiovisual projects and themed entertainment, you know, Universal Studios, Elvis cafes, game work cafes, those sort of things. I really relished in the details that the, the engineers would assign me. Um, and I really just learned as I drew and I just really, really dug in and I enjoyed it so much. I had really good mentors there. About a year later, they, they promoted me to design engineer. And from there, um, you know, I learned project management. At one point they uh, promoted me to director of engineering. You know, I was a senior project manager. And then eventually, you know, like I said, they moved me out to the West Coast to run the West Coast Systems Group. Entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs in different ways, some reluctantly. Sean saw opportunity. Well, I was with a company called Sound Deluxe, um, who were based in Orlando, um, started in the early 90s. And I grew up there. Um, in 99, they relocated me out to California as director of um, systems for the West Coast. And in 2002, uh, one morning, they collected us all, gathered us all uh, in the morning and said, uh, we're closing our doors at 5 p.m. And here are your severance checks, um, you know, get everything together, finish out your projects, whatever you need to do. And uh, this is it. So um, I proceeded to interview with different um, Los Angeles based companies and I found out I could really land anywhere. So what I and I wasn't extremely familiar with the Los Angeles companies at the time. So I went to my premier client, which was Universal Studios Hollywood. And I asked them, I said, hey, which one of these companies do you like? Uh, because I really want to continue to work with you. And they said, Sean, it doesn't matter. Wherever you go, we're going to go there because we like working with you. So I thought about it and I decided to start my own little company with um, two other people that were also uh, let go from Sound Deluxe. It was a very small company and it was hard because we were small, we were new. You know, it was hard to get financing. It was hard to get dealerships with, you know, large manufacturers that we needed. Um, but luckily um, within a six month period, uh, Rod Sinto, the former uh, owner of Pro Sound and Video, he contacted me one day and he said, if I hear your name one more time, and I said, what? <laughs> he said, uh, I need engineering help and everyone tells me I need to call you. Um, and he had lost an engineer in Las Vegas and he had two weeks to finish out an arena. And he said, can you please come over, meet with me? Um, I need your help. So I went over and met with him the next day and I ended up helping him. Uh, we finished it up, it was successful. Um, and then for the next you know, you know, know, three or four months, we continued to pimp out our labor to, to ProSound. So that was fun. And uh, eventually he asked us in a short period of time if we wanted to partner with him and start ProSound California, and uh, which we did in 2003. And so then I was uh, owner, part owner, and uh, ran ProSound California uh, for almost 20 years until I left after Solotech bought us. Um, and like I said, you know, took a break um, and then uh, went out and bought this new integration company. So now Sean is an entrepreneur again. I asked her how that feels. 
It feels great. I've been an entrepreneur since 2003. And uh, when I left uh, Pro Sound and Video, um, it was strange because I, I took a break and I dabbled in some consulting. I thought about applying for work at other companies. And what I realized is I very much enjoy being an entrepreneur and I like running things and I like being in control. So I'm really happy where I landed. Entrepreneurship. Yeah, I get that. How did you find this opportunity? Well, there was a lot of research involved. Uh, there were two game plans. Game plan one was to find a small company that wouldn't cost a lot of money uh, because, you know, we only had a certain budget to deal with. And, but a company that had potential, it had clients, it had employees, um, you know, maybe they weren't running so well, but that didn't matter because we knew we could go in and <clears throat> transform it into what we wanted. Um, this particular company, uh, being that it was small and a little troubled, um, they had landed a really large project at Universal Studios in Florida. Um, so they had that and uh, they had the employees, you know, they're about a 10 year old company. This one stood out and, um, you know, we made some deals and made it happen. Can you be a little more specific? Um, this one just uh, sort of turned out to be the one. Um, everything sort of fell into place. Like I said, um, you know, we met with the owner, um, looked at all the finances, met with some employees, and this one just seemed to be the right one. And it was in a, the right location, uh, which was Florida. Um, I can tell you that owning a company in California is a very hard thing to do. Um, and I, I can say that I likely do not ever want to do that again. <laughs> so um, I was sort of happy to come over to Florida uh, because uh, I'm from here, number one. Uh, my family is here. My mom lives here. Um, I grew up here. I started in the industry here. And uh, to get away from those taxes and high cost of living in California uh, really sounded appealing. Um, it just gets harder and harder to live out there every day. Uh, it's, it's very expensive, I have to say. And, and it's very hard, very hard to run a company. Well, it's hard to run a company just about anywhere. So now that you're back in Florida, what are you focusing on these days? At present, I'm most involved in um, a lot of things. <laughs> I have my hands on a lot of things. Uh, so I would say there's probably, you know, like a top five that I'm most involved in. And, um, you know, building relationships with clients and manufacturers is high on my list as an executive um, and growing this company. Um, also uh, creating teams with my employees and focusing on employee growth and development is important to me. Um, of course, I review profit and loss uh, with our you know, projects and everything else that we're spending in the company. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to save money and better ways to buy. And then the other thing that I'm really heavily involved in is the, um, the front side of our business, which is sales and engineering. I think it's really important to really nail it in those two departments in order to have a, a swift and profitable outcome during build and operations, programming, et cetera. 
So I deal with our sales department on a daily basis. You know, we have meetings. I review their bids. They bounce ideas off of me. And I'm very involved with engineering as well. Um, I make sure that our standards are followed. I actually, you know, have them give me things to review. Uh, I try to make sure that things are, I know it's hard to say perfect, but uh, I like things to be as perfect as possible um, before they get out of the engineering department and into procurement and build. You know, I'm always looking at that bottom line as well, and I, I want the best outcome possible. And I feel like <clears throat> what I do achieves that. And I'm really trying to teach the people that are with me now um, that way. Sean Risberg, President Pro Audio Video Inc. in Rockledge, Florida. Thanks, Sean. My dad, my father is a lover of music. I mean, most, most people in my family are. Um, Singer, songwriter, Tyler Sorensen talks about the hard work it takes to become a professional music entrepreneur. But I would just ride around in the vehicle with him in the back seat, you know, and he'd be singing along to all these different songs that I just fell in love with. And I would try my best to sing as closely as possible to the actual singer on the tape. And uh, over the years, it kind of got easier. And uh, I kind of realized, well, heck, I feel like I could do this. But then the uh, the thought of just being in front of people, singing in front of people scared me to death. So I never actually thought that I would be pursuing, you know, um, a career in music and trying to do that. Do you write the songs? Um, we write together. I write all the lyrics and most of the melodies I write. Uh, but, you know, nothing's off the table as far as cre the creative nature of our band goes. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is, for example, a song that we just recently performed at our last set was a song that Colby, the lead uh, guitar player, he pretty much made everything. You know, he 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 inspired me to write the lyrics the way that I wrote them. But as far as the vocal melody goes and everything about the song he created and it was just it was so good as, as it were. Like, I didn't want to touch it, you know, as it was, I didn't want to touch it and really mess with anything. So I just kind of wrote to his right. melody. things like that exist throughout all of our songs and we kind of come together and decide because at the end of the day, we don't want to release anything unless all members of the party are satisfied with it, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to do that, but it, uh, it provides a bigger reward whenever you get to that threshold and you cross it together. It makes it a lot more rewarding whenever you can look back and say, Hey, we're all pleased with this sound and we're all pleased with this song. Just a little bit longer. She's been waiting some time. Her face is wearing so thin like whiskey. Just feel so tight when I breathe.
When did you first start writing songs? Ooh, probably, I would say about 2020, 2019, roughly, you know, uh, really writing songs, you know. So you're uh, a new writer. You're you're oh, kind of a brand new newbie. Yeah, kind of definitely. Definitely very green, uh, but, <laughs> but willing, willing to step in and try my best. You know, I'm not... Uh, I'm not afraid to try new things in that realm, but definitely, you know, new. There's a part of writing that um, there's this magic to it that when you embrace the work and you start to actively commit to repetition of just attempting different melodies, thinking about how something can be said uh, as small as the, the smallest detail of how the words come out of your mouth, you know, it can change the entire characteristic of a song. So it's something that I am uh, constantly focusing on and trying to get better at. How did your band Oida come together? Well, that's a that's a funny one. You know, we all. So I'll start by saying this: Oida has had several different members uh, come and go, um, and there are two of us that were initially in the band, and that is Casey, the bass player, and myself. We started the band with our manager. Uh, his name's Brandon. We're all good friends. But, you know, we started off. We all worked together at a restaurant. Not Casey. Casey worked at the railroad at this time. He worked at Norfolk Southern, I believe it was. But he was busy doing his own thing in life. But I knew that he loved music. And I would walk around the house because I lived with three other roommates. Uh, one was a guitar player, extremely talented guy. His name's Sam Benedict. He was one of the original members, the original guitar player. And then the other guy that we lived with, his name was Brandon. He's our manager still. I was walking around the house singing tunes and everything. And Sam had always played guitar and Brandon's like, Hey man, you, you, you have a pretty good voice, you know, would you ever consider writing a song? You know? And I'm thinking, I mean, I don't know that that seems a little far fetched, not really what I'm into. <laughs> and, uh, over the time, you know, he, over time, he kind of convinced Sam and I to write a song together. So we wrote a song and it felt so awkward. I remember it feeling so weird. I felt like an imposter almost is the best way to put it, but uh, I just never viewed myself as that type of person. We started making music and then I realized, well, heck, this is kind of fun. I kind of enjoy this. So let's get a group of guys together. And we got all these dudes together who we knew could play instruments. And we had a crappy drum kit that my friend brought brought along. We didn't have a drummer. And it was just a bunch of us <laughs> playing chords and trying to come up with melodies. And we wrote a few things and it was fun, you know. But then from there on, we we stemmed into like a core group of guys, about four or five of us. And we kind of decided to name it Oida because Oida was the street that we lived on. It was Oida Terrace in Red Bank. Uh, we had a great landlord, great guy. We ended up getting this house up there with a pool in the back. And we were all college age and just having the time of our lives and enjoying every day that we could. And uh, just being creative and writing our music and doing what we felt was best, you know. So it kind of turned into, it went from that to kind of like a business mindset of like, okay, how do we promote ourselves? How do we grow? We got to come up with something. We got to produce, you know, we got to set a date. We got to get a show. We got to step forward because whenever you become stagnant, it's kind of when things dwindle away. It's when your dreams kind of sink down whenever you become stagnant in your efforts. So that's when it became real. Every little crooked word about me rolling straight past your tears. Just another crazy thing about you that your friends never see And I don't know what I've been a part of But I've got to go Instead of now 
like this fire that I started Cause it's never burned this cold Oh, it's never burned this cold Oh Put down what you wanted from me It's fine get to the point where you said this is what i want to do we're going to make this our profession right it was, uh, it was really about you know what we envisioned what we wanted we all want the same thing and i would encourage anybody you know like if you have a group of people around you who add to the fire and who want the same thing as you it makes it a lot easier to achieve your goals um and it's something that we all would do anything for and you know we've made that apparent and we get together we don't you know, when we do shows and we earn money for these shows, we don't put it in our pockets and, you know, use it frivol frivolously. We put it in a joint account and we use it as capital to further gain studio time, whether it be um, merchandise, things like that. I mean, we're always thinking in that regard of how can we push ourselves forward and put ourselves in a financial situation where we can then have the advantage for the versions of ourselves who existed in the past, you know, we're always trying to grow and having those guys around us with that mindset is just a game changer. And having someone who is willing to work the strings behind the scene, like my friend, Brandon, our manager, who uh, is constantly booking us, constantly working to create content, constantly working to give us album covers or whether it be setting up photo shoots or lining up a photographer for a live show or a videographer for a live show. We've met a lot of great people. Um, you know, it's just, we all want the same thing. We all believe in ourselves. We all believe it can be done. We all believe that more work could be done, but at the same time, we acknowledge the work that has been done. So it's a balance and you have to be, you know, kind to yourself in that regard and, uh, understand that, you know, you, we see people on a daily basis who are living out their dreams and, you know, what sets them apart from us is the mindset and the work ethic. Some commit to the workload and they do not give up. What is the greatest business challenge that you see facing you now? I'd say marketing. I'd say marketing, uh, maintaining relevancy, uh, keeping up with the funds, making sure that we have capital because ideally you want to be, and I know we want to be, we've made a commitment to try to release a single every single month. And uh, out of the gate, we released a single and now we're kind of falling short because we need to release our other single, which is in the process. And we got to do it all quickly, but we all, we have to do it in a careful manner to where we're actually happy with the product. And on top of that, you know, uh, we all have families. We're all family men. I mean, I'm a married man. I have a daughter, second baby on the way. I have a mortgage. I have a, I have a career, I have a job, you know, and my, my guitarist the same way. He's a, he's a manager at a plant out in Alabama and he's got a family, two kids and Kate, like we are all very, very busy. So ultimately the only time that we have is Saturday and Sunday. So it's a lot of sacrifice involved as well. And when we get together, you know, my guy in Alabama, he's got to drive an hour and a half just to come practice with us. So it's a, it's a challenge, but again, day in and day out, week in and week out, we are constantly committed and we, we make the proper sacrifices when necessary because we all have 
such a dynamic style in, as individuals in this group. We all have different styles and we all can, you know, Colby can play anything, Casey can play anything, and I'm very impressed by them. And myself as a singer, I feel like I can sing anything. And it's just tough to correlate and align those styles to say, hey, we could probably do all of these different genres, but what do we, what do we want to do? things that I am good at, this is what I'm best at. And sometimes that's just the way a small business starts. Other times it's because the business you work for closes its doors. Or sometimes it's because you have an idea that you want to try. At some point, all of these become the sweet spot of small business called the middle market. Thanks to my guests, Doug Farron, Managing Director of the National Center for the Middle Market, Sean Risberg, President, Pro Audio Video, and singer-songwriter Tyler Sorensen. I'll see you guys next time around. You've been listening to Management TBD with David McNutt, entrepreneur, management consultant, and teacher of business at the Zicklin School of Business in New York City. To send comments or program topic ideas, email david at themcnutgroup.com. <laughs>